Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. playing in the woods when he stumbled upon a little cocoon on a twig and so he took it home and uh, decided he would watch the chrysalis's transformation and soon a tiny opening did begin to form in the cocoon but a few weeks a few days later a butterfly had still not emerged and two whole weeks went by still no butterfly so the boy was beginning to get worried Because according to Google, most butterflies hatch within 10 to 14 days. And so he decided he would help the struggling butterfly by cutting the cocoon open himself. But just as he was pulling out his pocket knife, his father walked in the room and stopped him and said, if you do nothing, you're right. It is possible that the butterfly may be too weak to break free and he may die. But if you cut him free, you will ensure his death. You see, the process of emancipating itself from the cocoon is a vital part of the butterfly's development to strengthen its muscles and its wings in preparation for flight. If it's not yet strong enough to break free, then it's not yet strong enough to fly, and it will soon die anyway. God's design of a butterfly's growth necessarily entails difficulty and only by digging deep to overcome that obstacle is the butterfly able to successfully develop. And the lesson of the butterfly is the same lesson of Acts chapter 13 for you and me this morning as well. When we follow God's plan, we will encounter problems. But if we persevere, we will prosper. Repeat that again. That's our main idea for the message this morning. When we follow God's plan, we will inevitably encounter problems. But if we persevere, God's plan will prosper. We're going to see that pattern, that fourfold progression unfold in four different scenes in our scripture text for this morning, from which we're going to extrapolate four different applications for our own lives today. So, got that four times three. Four movements, plan, problem, perseverance, prospering. That cycle will occur four times in four different places, in Paphos, and Perga, and Pisidian, Antioch, and in the whole region, from which we will glean together four lessons. The context here for Acts chapter 13, we're going to be in Acts chapter 13, verses 4 through 52. If you want to begin finding that, if you have your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to bless you with a Bible this morning at the info bar as well. But we began Acts chapter 13 last week, and it opened in the first three verses with the leaders of the church in Syrian Antioch, praying and receiving word from the Holy Spirit to set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so the church does that. They pray over them and they set them apart and send them out on the first ever missionary journey. And so we're going to pick up their story this morning in verse 4 
uh, chapter 13, I'd invite you to stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's word. It's a long passage if you need to stretch your legs. If you're not able to stand, that is totally okay, but we like to stand for the respect of the reading of God's word as you're able to. Hear the word of the Lord this morning, Acts 13. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they'd gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came, to a certain, came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And so Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations and the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. And then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those who among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. 
for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. They fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them again the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, now we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life, they believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women and high and uh, women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and they went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. A lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Now as we Submit ourselves under the authority of your word and its exposition. Would you use your word and your spirit to minister to us this morning? God, especially, I pray if there is 
Anyone here this morning, maybe many people here this morning, going through difficulty, struggles in life, maybe even for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of their faith, their belief in you, God, I pray you would especially minister to them this morning. Would you comfort them? Use your word this morning to remind them that we will encounter problems in life, and yet if we persevere, your plan will prevail. We pray that that might be true for all our lives and our gospel ministry as we seek to follow in the example Paul, Barnabas, making you famous to the ends of the earth. We pray this for your glory, Jesus, in your name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so Paul and Barnabas set sail from Seleucia. I've got the map up there for you, if it's helpful, for the island of Cyprus, right there at the bottom middle, and they arrive in the town of Salamis on the east eastern coast of the island, but you can scratch that out in your bulletins if you're going to be taking notes in your bulletins this morning, and you can write in, instead of Salamis, please write in Paphos instead. That is where the real action is going to take place in verses 4 through 12, in Paphos on the western side of the island, and it's after they've traveled through the whole island, proclaiming the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews in every town. So they come to Paphos, and we read, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now that description tells us really everything we need to know about this man. He's three strikes against him right up front. He's a magician. He's a sorcerer, so strictly prohibited in Scripture, Deuteronomy 18, verse 10, in the Old Testament, Galatians 5.20, in the New Testament. And yet he should have known better because he's also a Jew. He's Jewish, at least culturally, if not religiously, practicing Jew, because Luke, Luke tells us he's a false prophet. He's fallen away from you know, the, the true faith. Strike number two, false prophets also condemned, of course, Deuteronomy 18, verse 20, in the Old Testament, and Matthew 7.15 in the New Testament. Beware of false prophets, Jesus said. And then thirdly, Speaking of Jesus, his name is Bar-Jesus. That means son of Jesus in Aramaic. Now you may recall uh, back in Acts chapter 11 verse 19, persecution had scattered the Christians in the church in Jerusalem as far as Cyprus. And so perhaps this man has heard rumors of this man Jesus in whose name powerful miracles are being performed in the region. And so he figures calling himself son of Jesus might get him some street cred, be good for business. Of course, we know Jesus had no children. Sorry, Dan Brown. Right? This is blasphemy. And so he is a blasphemous, phony occultist. But we hear in verse 7, he was with the proconsul, the Roman governor of the province of Cyprus, a man named Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, we hear, who had summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So God is stirring something, doing something in this man's heart. But, verse 8, Elimus, notice that Luke won't even uh, do him the honor of repeating his fake name, uh, the ridiculous assertion that he's the son of Jesus, Bar-Jesus. And so he calls him instead magician by his title. Elimus opposed them. 
And so now God's plan is beginning to take shape even as the problem standing in the way is taking shape as well. God's plan is the gospel conversion of this proconsul. Remember, God had promised Saul back in Acts chapter 9 at his own conversion that Saul would be God's chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and kings, before rulers, people in high places, people of authority and influence. And so this is Saul's real first chance on, on a wide, you know, bigger platform uh, like that. But unfortunately, as intelligent as Sergius Paulus was, in his desperate search for the truth, he has begun to be swayed by this false prophet, Alemus, who's dabbling in the occult, had perhaps actually afforded him some real power. Now, the Bible is, is clear. There is actually power in these kinds of dark magic. But it's just that, it's dark power, demonic power. And so he's managed to win the ear of this proconsul who he is seeking to turn away from the faith, verse 8. But Alemus knows that this would completely undermine, destroy his whole business if the governor came to real faith in the real Jesus. And so what does Saul do? Verse 9. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Saul looked intently at him, locked eyes, and he said, Elimus, God loves you. Is that what he says? Jesus loves you? That might be what we expect someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit to say. How we expect someone filled with the Holy Spirit to respond in the face of opposition. But that's not what Paul says no, when the opposition that is standing between the gospel and a person who desperately needs to hear and receive the message of the gospel, when that opposition is in the way, it is no time to be nice. If someone is suffering from a life-threatening illness and you've got the only cure, the antidote, but as you're going to administer it to them, Someone else tries to prevent you from helping and saving that person's life. That's no time to be polite. No, Paul says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. And it is interesting that this is the very first time in Scripture that he's called Paul. Before he was Saul, named after Israel's first king, who was the biggest, strongest guy in town, the kind of king that the Israelites wanted and asked for, a king like all the other nations, a tough guy, a man's man. But you know what Paul means? Paul means small, humble. God is saying here, Saul, you might have ministered in your own strength, you might have lived life in your own strength and had, you know, this this whole religious pedigree behind you, training under the, the Pharisee Gamaliel and your zeal for me, all that stuff. He says it's not going to be your size or statue, your wisdom or wit, your rhetoric or religious pedigree that will make you the most important missionary of all time. It's going to be your smallness. It's going to be your humble reliance on me, on my strength, on my power, made perfect in your weakness my power flowing through you. And being filled with that power, with God's power, the Spirit's power, here in the face of gospel opposition, 
means contending for the gospel. Contending means to struggle in opposition. There is a time and a season for everything we're told in Scripture. There's a time to be born, a time to die. There's a time for peace and a time for war. And when demonic forces are at work, again, this guy's into dark magic. He's a son of the devil who's trying to stop at all costs this influential ruler from hearing the good news about Jesus. That is a time for war, for spiritual warfare. So Paul suits up the armor of God and confronts him, contends for the faith. And yet, ironically and redemptively, in a way that only God can, the Lord is going to use Elemus's opposition not only to punish Elemus, that's verse 11, immediately we hear he's struck blind. We don't hear the rest of his story, but I do think it's interesting the parallels between his story and Paul's, Saul's conversion, right? Back in Acts 9. So we can only hope and pray that one day we'll meet Elemus in heaven. But his chastisement then becomes the very thing that prompts the proconsul to believe. You know, the very thing he's trying to stand in the way of is the very thing God uses to accomplish his purposes, his plan, and bring the proconsul to faith in the power of the gospel. And so what is the practical application, the takeaway for you and me this morning? I think it's this. When the gospel is opposed, we oppose right back. We contend for the faith. Now notice, I did not say when you're opposed... So when the gospel is opposed, Paul and I have this neighbor a couple houses down that doesn't like me. I'm not sure why. He opposes me. Some of y'all know me well enough to know I've got a couple ideas why, maybe. But he doesn't doesn't like us, won't talk to us. We walk right by him, walking our dog on the sidewalk. Pretends like we don't exist. And it takes everything within me not to, you know, confront him, tell him, What's what? I tried to, to at least, you know, force him to talk to me just this past week, actually, and I did get, you know, an interaction. It seemed to make it worse, though. I think he hates me more. But I'm just going to, Jesus said, love your enemies. So I'm going to keep killing him with, with niceness, with, with kindness and love because he opposes me. But then we've got another neighbor, two houses down the other way, and she fancies herself a loving, tolerant person. They've got the secular creed sign proudly planted in their front yard. In this house, we believe black lives matter, women's rights are human rights, science is real, love is love. In other words, we believe in CRT, abortion, evolution, and the LGBTQ agenda, which is fine. She's lost. We pray for her. But the problem is her 20-year-old daughter, who still lives at home, came down a little while ago and knocked on our door and asked if she could start attending church with us because she desperately wants something to believe in. So I, I can't believe that, that this is all that life is. It's about. And so we started giving her rides to church and answering her questions, sharing the gospel with her. Sure enough, a few weeks later, we get a phone call informed that Gabby will no longer be attending church with you from the mom. Because, of course, tolerance has its limits, right? This woman is intolerant of the gospel. She said, Gabby keeps asking me, what if it's true, Mom? What if it's true? What if we're sinners and we really do need Jesus? Or we could go to hell. 
She said, please stop filling my daughter's mind with such ideas. Friends, how do we respond to that kind of a situation? When someone is directly opposing gospel ministry, standing in the way between the gospel and someone who desperately needs to hear and receive the gospel. I suggest to you, scripture is clear, as believers we must stand firm, stand up, and contend for the faith, oppose that kind of gospel opposition. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we called mom a daughter of the devil to her face. But we did tell her that, hey, if your daughter has real questions, we're not going to stop her from asking us. And we're not going to stop from answering them with truth, with God's truth, the gospel. And so when the gospel is opposed, we need to oppose that opposition. Number two, now we're in Perga. Story shifts to second scene in Perga, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. Now this is the shortest of the four sections. It's just a verse and a half long. But we get all four movements in the redemptive progression there once again. Plan, problem, perseverance, prospering. God's plan here is for a gospel alliance between the apostles. You know, missions is never easy, but it is exponentially easier in the context of community. It's a lot harder to stand for Jesus when you're standing alone, isn't it? And so we need the encouragement that comes from fellowship with other believers. It'd be an exhortation to you, Meg, Micah, when you get to, to away to college, join a gospel preaching church, join gospel-centered campus ministries. But the problem here is one of gospel abandonment. In verse 13, specifically by one John who is called Mark, verse 5 informs us that John Mark had accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their journey to assist them. But now, in verse 13, he deserts them. And we should clarify that Mark did not abandon the gospel itself. He did, didn't become a heretic. Rather, he abandoned the ministry of the gospel, the work of missions to which he had been called and sent by the Holy Spirit. And while we don't know much about the circumstances of Mark's departure. We do know that later in chapter 15, Paul will distrust Mark because of it. So clearly Mark didn't leave for good reasons on good terms. We also know that Mark, we can speculate about his reasons. We know that Mark was cousins with Barnabas who was from Cyprus. And so it's possible that, that uh, Mark had some family connections on the island that made traveling there more appealing to him, but made continuing on from there to Asia Minor less appealing. You can also keep in mind, here is a picture of uh, modern-day Cyprus, the island uh, where they started their journey. looks like a pretty nice place to be a missionary to me. Now compare that to pictures of modern-day Perga. And Turkey, right? So you begin to see why Mark was getting homesick when the journey shifted to Perga. Mark came from a privileged upbringing, we know. Perhaps he just wasn't cut out for roughing it through the mountains of Pisidia. You can add to that the fact that many scholars believe that Paul contracted malaria while he was here in Perga. We 
read allusions to that in Galatians 4.13. And so between leaving family, leaving paradise, treacherous mountains, terrible malaria, it was all too much for Mark, and he tapped out and went home. But what did Paul and Barnabas do? They no doubt were discouraged by Mark's departure, and yet they abided, they persevered, they pressed on, to the work to which God had called them. And so if we flip ahead to that passage in Mark 15 that I mentioned, we're actually going to see how God will redemptively use even Mark's abandonment to actually advance the spread of the gospel. Paul and Barnabas in chapter 15 are going to disagree over who to bring with them on their second missionary journey. They're ready for for trip number two, and Barnabas is ready to forgive his cousin Mark and give him a second chance. Paul still hasn't let it go yet, and so they're actually going to split up now, uh, this dream team, Paul and Barnabas. And Barnabas is going to take Mark and go west back to Cyprus, while Paul teams up with Silas now in, in chapter 15 and heads north through Cilicia. And so God will use even their argument over Mark's abandonment to accomplish gospel advancement. That's the way that God works. And years later, even Paul and Mark will redemptively be reunited and make up. In fact, some of Paul's very last words that we have in his letters, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul asked Timothy to bring Mark to me for he is very useful to me in ministry. This reunification and reconciliation. We know that Mark would, of course, go on to author one of the four canonical gospels that bears his name. God would go on to use even Mark in powerful ways for his own purposes. Redemption is God's redemptive power. And yet, here in the moment, in chapter 13 of Acts, Mark looks just like a wimpy traitor. But Paul and the others stay the course And that's the takeaway for you and me this morning. When the gospel is forsaken, we persist in the faith. Even when the gospel is forsaken, we persist in the faith. How many of you have had people close to you, you thought were Christian friends, church friends, were close, fall away from the faith, forsake the gospel? How discouraging is that to you in your faith? You know, it always hurts when someone leaves the church but one of the hardest departures for me had to be the couple who left West Hills just months into COVID because like many folks, they had used quarantine as an opportunity to check in on other churches, uh, live stream virtual services, check it out. And so after months of me reaching out, calling them, they finally sent me a letter uh, to let me know that they were leaving because this other church just had a much better production value than West Hills just a much more polished product. They assured me that it had nothing to do with my teaching. They appreciated that we're still teaching the word, still staying true to the gospel. But I guess for them, the glitz and the glamour had become more important than the gospel. So uh, at least I appreciate their honesty. That really takes the wind out of your sails, doesn't it? As a fellow believer, as as a pastor, folks who've been members of the church for decades prove that after all those years, Their faith is still so shallow. Maybe like Mark, they didn't forsake the gospel altogether. As far as I know, their new church preaches the same gospel. 
But I'm not sure that that church is calling them to the kind of self-sacrificial gospel ministry that we see from Paul and Barnabas here. Seems more like a return to Antioch in Syria and be comfortable church than a press on for the sake of difficult gospel ministry church. There's a world of difference between a what can I get out of church kind of church and a what can I give into and sacrifice for the sake of those God is calling me to reach kind of church. And I'll just say unapologetically here at West Hills, we're going to be the second church. We're going to be the latter. When others forsake the gospel ministry that Christ has called us to, we will persist in the gospel. And so number three, Paul and Barnabas do that. They press on to Antioch in Pisidia. Not to be confused with Antioch in Syria, as I said. That was their sending church out east, Syria. But this is Antioch in Pisidia. And in verse 14, they are in the synagogue there on the Sabbath. And they get invited by the Jewish leaders to share a word of encouragement with the congregation. Be careful who you share your pulpit with. This really backfires on them because Paul proceeds to launch into one of the longest and most gospel-rich sermons in all of the book of Acts, where he makes God's plan so clear all throughout his sermon, God's plan to offer a rationale, a reason, a biblical proof for accepting the truth of the gospel that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And because Paul is preaching here to fellow Jews who accept the authority of the Old Testament as God's inspired word, that's exactly where he takes them to prove the point in his rationale that Jesus was God's promised Messiah. He essentially takes them right to the Old Testament and retells an abridged version of their entire joint history together as a people through scripture. Verse 17, God chose our fathers, the patriarchs, that's Genesis 11 through 15. And then he made the people great while in Egypt. Then he led them out of Egypt. That's Exodus 1 uh, through 15. Then verse 18, after God had put up with them for 40 years in the wilderness, that's Exodus 16 through the end of Deuteronomy. Then after destroying seven nations, verse 19, in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. That's the book of Joshua. And then he gave them the judges. That's the book of you guessed it, judges. All right, verse 21, then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul. This is the book of 1 Samuel. Then he raised up, verse 22, David, another king to be their king, king after his own heart. That's 2 Samuel. Then interestingly, once he gets to David, Paul knows that's his, his hook. That's his, his in to share the gospel. He doesn't need to, to continue rehearsing, rehashing the last thousand years of the divided monarchy and Israel's steady decline into wickedness and apostasy, all the warnings of the prophets, the exiles of both Israel and Judah. Paul skips all of that and he makes a beeline for the cross. Charles Spurgeon once reportedly said that his strategy in preaching any passage of scripture was to read the text for the morning and then make a beeline for the cross. What's the clearest, simplest way that I can preach the gospel from this passage of Scripture? That was Paul's approach too, by the way. I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so Paul makes a beeline for the cross and he hits them with the gospel in verse 23. Of this man, speaking of David, 
of his offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. My discipleship group, we were just in First and Second Samuel this past week, and we read, reread that pr- promise of God to David, to, to David about your offspring. Through your offspring, I'm going to establish a kingdom that will last forever. Well, how do you make sense of that promise without Jesus, without the Messiah? Because David's offspring was Solomon, who enjoyed a a few years of a kingdom before immediately after Solomon, the kingdom divides, it dissolves. There's no kingdom. There's no kingdom of Israel anymore. And so Paul is helping them make sense of it. God wasn't talking about Solomon. He's talking about Jesus, Israel's Savior, as he promised. Verse 27, but the Jews in Jerusalem, they didn't recognize him as such or understand these prophecies about him. So ironically, they fulfilled the prophecies by condemning him. They crucified Jesus. But then here comes the gospel, verse 30. God raised him from the dead in fulfillment of all these Old Testament promises and prophecies, Psalm 2-7, Isaiah 55-3, Psalm 16, verse 10. And so Paul concludes them, as every gospel presentation should, with an invitation, and if the invitation is not accepted, with a warning. He says in verse 38, here's the invitation, let it be known to you then that through this man Jesus, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed in the law of Moses. He says the law can't save you. The law is just a mirror. The law can only show you your sinfulness and your need for a Savior from it. But now he's come. His name is Jesus Repent and believe in him, his death and resurrection for your sins. Trust in Jesus and you will be saved. So he invites them and calls them to faith. But then Paul ends with a warning too. Verse 40, beware lest what is said in the prophets should prove true of you. And then he quotes Habakkuk 1.5 about scoffers who will not believe and who therefore will perish. See, Paul is already anticipating their response and the problem that is going to arise one week later on the next Sabbath when these same leaders who invited Paul into their pulpit the previous Saturday get jealous when they see the whole city turn up next week to hear him for part two of the message. His congregation was bigger than theirs. So they get jealous, and in verse 45, they begin to contradict him, reviling him. They reject him and his gospel message. Once again, Paul and Barnabas, they don't pull out when God's plan encounters problems. Instead, they persevere. Specifically, they offer a gospel rebuttal, gospel rationale, gospel rejection, now gospel rebuttal in verses 46 and 47. They say it was necessary that we preach to you first so that you could reject the gospel and we could therefore turn and give it to the Gentiles in fulfillment, by the way, of Isaiah 49, 6. Oh, by the way, God has even prophesied, foretold your rejection of the gospel. 
He's already woven it into his plan of salvation to the ends of the earth, not just for, for Israel anymore. It's all part of God's plan. And now God is using even their rejection to reach the Gentiles with the gospel. Instead, God uses it to extend the gospel reach to the ends of the earth, verse 48. And the, God, the Gentiles love it. They, they're partying. When they heard it, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Because you've got these God-fearing Gentiles who are second-class citizens in Israel, and they know there's something about this God of Israel that we love, you know, worship him. But they're, they, they're always kind of excluded from the community of faith. And now here comes Paul telling them, there's no longer any distinction. Jew or Gentile, male or, f- or female, slave or free, we're all one in Christ Jesus. They're glorifying, rejoicing in the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And we're saved. So what's the practical application for you and me? And it's when the gospel is rejected, we warn people. We have to warn people. Sadly, many of us may only work up the courage to share the gospel with someone. I'm not talking about striking up a nice conversation with someone, smiling and showing them God's love with my actions. I'm not talking about inviting them to church. I'm not talking about praying for people. Those are all wonderful things. But we are also, as believers, we are unapologetically called in Scripture by our Lord and Savior to evangelize, to explicitly share the all-important exclusively saving, necessary news about Jesus, the good news that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and he's come. Trust in Jesus, and you'll be saved. That gospel we need to share with people, but we we may only do it if we're honest. Once or twice a month, some of us. Once or twice a year. And so when we do, we get nervous and anxious. Sometimes we get we just get so relieved when we actually do it. We get so proud of ourselves. We're quick to pat ourselves on the back that we actually don't pay attention. We're not as concerned with how the person responds. We need to pay attention. How is the person responding to this gospel invitation we've, we've offered them? And so if the person says, you know, thanks for sharing that with me, I'm still not sold on the whole Jesus thing. I guess I can keep thinking on it. We may be too quick to reply. Sure, keep thinking on it. If you want to talk about it more, just let me know. I'm out of here. As opposed to warning them, like Paul does here, sure, you can keep thinking on it, but don't think too long because none of us is guaranteed our next breath around here and I promise you don't want to go meet God face to face without knowing Jesus as your savior and by the way you were made for a relationship with him that's like why you were created and so every day you sit around here dragging your feet pondering it delaying a relationship with him it's just wasted time don't waste your life Trust in Jesus and start a relationship with him today. Friends, when the gospel is rejected, we need to warn people. We need to warn people. Lastly, number four, in the whole region, shifted from set up shop in 
Pisidian Antioch, and now that gospel is beginning to spread like wildfire to the whole region in verses 49 through 52, and God's plan, problem, and perseverance and prospering becomes clear here. God's plan is just that. It's the promulgation of the gospel. Verse 49, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the problem is gospel persecution. Those same Jews weren't so happy about it. Verse 50, but the Jews, they incited the devout women, the leading men. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas amongst the influential people, and they drove them out of their district. And so what do Paul and Barnabas do? Pack up shop and head home? No. They do exactly what Jesus had told them to do all the way back in the Gospels. They shake the dust off their feet and go on to the next city. That's what Jesus said. You know, you, you're gonna, I'm going to send you out as my witnesses. You share the Gospel. If they accept it, and they accept you, accept their hospitality, stay with them, plan a church. And if they won't, if they reject me, reject you, reject the gospel, shake the dust off your feet, just keep going. Take that as God's way of saying, I need, I need the gospel to go to other nations instead right now. And so that's what they do in verse 51. They go on to Iconium instead where the gospel prospered the gospel found good soil and took root and continues to grow and prosper and proliferate and spread throughout the region because when the gospel is persecuted we persevere that's that's the takeaway for us church so the question is the, the question in closing is will we do it will we do all, all four of these practical applications, will we persevere and push through the obstacles that, that appear to be getting in God's way? Maybe it's the exact thing God's using to strengthen you, to strengthen us. Will we oppose when the gospel is opposed? Will we abide when the gospel is abandoned? Will we rebut and warn when the gospel is rejected? And will we persevere when the gospel persecuted. May it be true of us, church, with God's help. And that's the thing. It'll never be true of us if we're still like Saul. If it's still about us, our power, our strength, how tall and handsome we are, our charisma, we got to be like Paul. got to be small, weak, humbly reliant on the Lord, his strength, his power. Remember Acts 1-8, title verse for our whole series? You'll be filled with power from above, and then and only then will you be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. May that be true of us, West Hills. Maybe we be weak, but strong in God's strength, and be filled with his Holy Spirit.